0: You. Um, I have a very short time to try to tell you about something that I think in, in a technical sense is fairly sophisticated, uh, but I don't think it really matters. I hope you'll take my word for it. It works. We, we make sophisticated stuff that works. There's a, there's a bigger subtlety to this piece of technology, which frankly is well beyond the, the technology and frankly something that I think all of you can help me with. Um, I don't have time to go around and try to amuse people. Uh, I only take time for things like this because it can advance what I would think is a very important cause. And I want to start by thanking the Reynolds for letting me do that. The last time they let me meet a bunch of people, it had some quite extraordinary positive effects. So. Very quickly, a situation analysis. First, I ought to tell you, by the way, because I am a a physicist primarily, and I heard somebody quote this morning that imagination is more important than knowledge. And then somebody point out that in some places, that's not a good thing. Um, (laughs) I just want to clarify for you that, in fact, that is a quote originated by Albert Einstein, where I think it was very applicable. Uh, I'd also like to tell you he's full of great quotes and I collect a lot of his early writings. And one of the things he said, which is rarely quoted, this is when he was a patent examiner in Zurich, um, the difference between genius and stupidity is genius has its limits. Um, (laughs) So for for all of you Rhodes scholars, beware. Uh, But anyway, a situation analysis. Uh, So far there's been speakers in a lot of different subjects. A former president talked about health care. The former uh, majority leader of the Senate pointed out that you're going to pick world leaders based on how they deal with health care. You had a panel in the morning that talked about epidemics of obesity and diabetes areas that I've spent 20 years working in. Everybody recognizes health care on a global basis is a massive issue, technical issue, financial issue, ethical issue every other kind of issue. So what if I said to you as a situation analysis, what if we could start by wiping out 80% of all the health issues among humans on this planet? if you could just take away 80%? That wouldn't be bad, right? How could you do it? Well, what if we took all the heart disease, all of cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, t- take all the disease states that you know, put them all together, you think you'd get to 80 percent, and by the way, we don't know how to cure all cancers and all of coronary disease. We don't know how to wipe out diabetes, which 16 million Americans have. But imagine you get a free one here. Imagine you could wipe them all out. Would that be 80 percent? Wouldn't be close, because there'd still be plenty of other diseases you know of, and if you added in all those other diseases you know of all together, they're 20 percent. Because here's the rub. 80% of all human disease on planet Earth is bad water. 80%. Two million kids died this year because of bad water and that's nothing to do with tsunamis. 80%. So why don't we go where the low hanging fruit is? A, it would be a really big deal to wipe out 80% of all the sickness and misery. And B, compared to solving all those other problems, which all our brilliant future MD, PhDs are going to do, We ought to be able to get rid of a problem like let's not have people dying of cryptosporidia and gerardia and cholera and diarrhea. One would think that's a straightforward problem. Again, the bad news, the world knows about that problem. It's not like I'm the only one with this secret piece of data. (laughs) So why is it still lingering out there? Is it no technology? I don't think so. But there's a peculiar thing about technology in this world. It sits in silos. It really does. And the people that use it and apply it and the people that have to deal with it are rarely all singing the same song. I know I have only a few minutes and at the risk of wasting a couple of them on what you think is tangential, I'd like to point that out. Maybe you'll see an analogy. A couple of years ago, I was called by the administrator of NASA. NASA, they don't worry about the cost of anything to put one person somewhere. They don't worry about global issues that affect 80 percent of all the people that are sick. They were having a meeting on what to do about really making space travel, like getting humans to another planet a reality. And they were bringing in outside people, they thought big technology insights would be needed to solve some of the basic problems to get some human being to the next planets. And they had all day sessions on, we don't care the sky's the limit. Tell us how we're going to do that. And one of the sessions was, well, we know we've got to keep these people alive as they go there, and it's going to take many, many months for this trip. We need to be able to, for instance, give them water. And I had been working for many years on this issue in many contexts, reconstituting dialysis fluid. And I was listening to incredibly bright people in this room, in which I had been invited, and the sky is the limit. So people were saying, well, I know there's ammonia gas around some of the planets. We can land, and we can find ways to turn it into urea. We can use urease and turn that. We can pull oxygen molecules off of stuff in the atmosphere, get them to bind to hydrogen. We can make water in real time. I mean, there was no limit to what they were willing to do because they pointed out it cost a million dollars a pound to put a payload in space. And, you know, water weighs 62 pounds per cubic foot. You need 10 liters of it a day. This is a problem. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to stop on the Moon and generate water there, manufacture it, because then to move it to these other places would be easier. And again, all these shuttle, everything made sense. Everything was legal. They finally asked me what I thought. And I said, if getting the water from, for instance, the Moon to Mars is going to be a real problem, I think what we should do is just cut a deal with a guy that has the Starbucks uh, uh, concession for the moon. We'll go buy, even at four bucks a cup, we can buy the water from this guy on the moon, <laughs> put it in a spaceship, and then go, because four bucks is way cheaper than a million dollars a pound. Uh, so some of you laugh at that. Why are you laughing? It would be cheaper, right? That was a perfectly logical statement. If you could take the water that's up there in the Starbucks, and it would make sense, right? The reason you laugh is there's a problem, but it's not a technical problem. It's a context problem. You sort of understand, Dean, you idiot, if there really was a Starbucks already on the moon, we probably wouldn't have to deal with this problem at all, right, and it's so absurd, it's funny. The way we deal with global health is more absurd than that for exactly that reason. It isn't the technology. For 60 years, pretty big organizations have been trying to solve this problem. And they come up with brilliant solutions. Well, if you take shallow water in Africa, it's mostly on the surface and what people are dying of is organic stuff, cryptosporidia, Giardia. A little bit of chlorine in that stuff will solve the problem. And it's cheap. A couple of tablets for a metric ton of water, it's cheap. Why don't we just do that, implement the solution? Well, if you go to India and Bangladesh, they dug wells so that they don't have acute disease and instant death from cholera. Now they dig deep wells and they get down to the substrates where there's arsenic, so they die in a few years of liver toxicity. And they die from the inorganics. Well, you see, chlorine won't take that out. So we'll use activated charcoal or something to pull the ions out. But how do you know? That, that water looks pretty good. And then you go to a place where there's salt water. Well, activated charcoal isn't going to make salt water drinkable, and chlorine isn't going to make. Well, so we'll use a different plan here. We'll build a, a system. And there are all sorts of instantly imaginable, cheap solutions that work. In fact, they're so cheap that we Westerners um, use water, the stuff of life, as less than a commodity. It's free to us. We drink the stuff out of the garden hose, and every two seconds worth of flow is a human life per day. And it's so cheap that it's yet drinkable. We wash the car with it. We let it run down the streets because it's much work to walk back to the house and turn it off. It's only 30 gallons a minute going by. So depending on your context, you can laugh at it. But if you went to most of these places in the world, implementing any of these other solutions would be remarkably difficult. You go to places that don't have enough infrastructure, how are you going to get the chlorine there? How are you going to know how much to add? How are you going to know what the particular conditions are? And so although all these situations and solutions exist, it would be as silly to think in the year 2005 we're suddenly going to have enough infrastructure for nearly 2 billion people that don't have all the other things we assume as the substructure and the infrastructure that we take for granted in the developed world and force on them this Western model of this is how you make water drinkable. If you don't believe me, it's been tried. If you look at the amount of money spent by giant organizations around this planet in the last 60 years, and I'm talking about the big ones. The World Health Organization, the United Nations Development Fund, USAID. It's not like people don't know this is an issue. They spend unbelievable amounts of money trying to deal with this issue. But they have this model. They're going to go to the Starbucks up there, buy it. For f- There's no Starbucks. So, a number of years ago, I was thinking about what if you could make a simple system that really could run anywhere with essentially no infrastructure that didn't require a change in the whole cultural basis of wherever it went and it's so scalable you could start small and make it big and it seemed like a really good idea the trouble is how do you make a machine that requires no disposables no filters no membranes no chemicals no nothing you put one end of it in stuff that looks like water and out comes stuff that's not sort of potable but drinkable it's pure it's what you would drink I don't have time to go through it, but you spend a little time, you don't cheat the second law of thermodynamics, but you cut a little close to the edge and you recover 98.5 percent of all the energy that runs through a vapor compression distiller, instead of requiring 25 kilowatts to make pure distilled water at a rate of 10 gallons an hour or 1,000 liters an hour a day, you do it in a way that takes under 600 watts. And for 600 watts, you make a little box that can sit in any village where there's up to 100 people. And for 600 watts, you make a box that says if there's any kind of water around, including your latrine and your septic system, we'll make it pure, we'll make it drinkable. And for the next five years, hundred people in this village will live for about four cents a day. And you do it with none of these things. So I decided we could build such a thing. And we spent a lot of time and a lot of money with a lot of physicists and a lot of engineers. We used all the ologists here to make it simple enough that you could just use it. And we made one. My typical business model is I go to giant companies, whether it's with dialysis equipment or diabetes pumps or stents, and I say to them, I've delivered a solution here to you. Now you have to find the efficient way to bring it to the marketplace. That's how the world works. Big companies are good at doing that. Little companies are good at inventing. Who do you take a box like this to? Sadly, I'll tell you, I tried all the big organizations. You heard the President yesterday say the world's now coming down to individuals making differences. I hope he's right. Because big organizations think in big models. They can't wrap their head around a different kind of model. They want to spend 10 years and $10 billion building a dam. By the time they're finished, if they're done, if it happens, if it's on schedule, if there's no corruption, if the government stays around, They'll by then be moving toxic waste from one place to another, serving a very small subset of the people that otherwise would have needed water. They won't have created the kinds of jobs people there can have and maintain, and it will be a problem. So I made this little machine, and to help you figure out just why we think it's not the technology per se, but the different model, I'll tell you very briefly about an example that made it work. You may have heard of Iqbal Qadir. And Muhammad Yunus, who started the Grameen Bank and the Grameen phone company, some of you are economists and people in political science saying, "Yeah, micro lending, microcredit—that's a brilliant thing. That's what we got to do." Well, you couldn't use that to build the phone company; it wouldn't work. And others of you can think about all sorts of neat technology, like how to do packet switching and make microwave cell phones work. Well, that would be great, but the, devel- un- the developing world can't afford it. The magic of Muhammad Yunus and Iqbal was they said, let's take technology, and because of what it is, if we now can make $25 microloans to people, we can go to Bangladesh, and instead of watching another 50 years go by, waiting for an infrastructure that will build the Ma Bell or some giant government-run phone company, we'll let them start standing on the shoulders of 100 years of technology. We'll make microloans to people, and we'll make communications a point of use concept. And in a couple of years, these entrepreneurs ended up serving 50 million people use these phones. And it's the most successful microloan program in the world. I called Iqbal a couple of years ago and said, it's amazing what you've done by bringing the right technology in in a way that it circumvented the government and all the other kinds of issues that seem to be necessary in in this world that make it hard to let the developing world get on that ladder that starts to climb out of poverty. I said to him, we've got a device that can do for water what you did for communications. We have a device that you should do this with. He took two of our devices, our electrical devices, went, took a sabbatical, from the sabbatical he took to go to Harvard and teach, or to the Kennedy School. He went back a few months ago to Bangladesh with two of our generator systems. We're running two villages on it now. And we're hoping to figure out a plan. The technology you can take for granted. It's not our state of technology. It's our state of mind. Where do we put our priorities? We can take a, some of these boxes and put them around the world, and within a couple of years eliminate the fact that 80 percent of the people that are sick are sick because of bad water. This little thing says stop. To show you very quickly, I'll get to a slide we made, which hopefully you'll get to taste the water. You're welcome to come up and do that here, but to to understand how this machine works if they can show this slide not that that's a piece of news you know that's a what are you going to do with that does that need chlorine does it need some other kind of filter does it need osmosis membrane is it brackish we decided you got to use a different machine so i made standard black and white little fold up sheet that comes with every 5 dollar radio you buy and it explains to you how to use it although nobody ever can understand it So, the next slide, this is our instruction manual. Step one, just add water, (laughs) any water, really. (laughs) Step two, see step one. (laughs) Shows a guy there, that's our entrepreneur. He'll make money to make this thing work, selling water at a penny a day per human being. What's not required, because that's the big deal. What's not required are, Environmental engineers, civil engineers, or any engineers, pipelines, pretreatment systems, delivery systems, any municipal systems, epidemiologists, hydrogeologists, microbiologists, anyologists, <laughs> osmosis membranes, activated charcoal, chemical additives, any consumables. You don't need building permits, bribery, treaties, or any bureaucracy. What's not required, decades to develop it and install it. What's not required, any delay to do something serious. We are not limited by technology, everybody. If it doesn't get done, it's because you made choices about what's important in life. The good news is I think the president and everybody else has been saying the world's getting to where individuals are doing things. NGOs are growing up because the governments are not. That's the good news. You're all empowered, and you particularly are the rarest people in the world. Think about it. There are 6.3 billion people out there. How many people are Gates Scholars and Rhodes? Look at the number of people in this room. You're rarer than people that win million-dollar lotteries. You have an obligation because you have all this resource and all this power. Your obligation is to give back, to figure out how to make a difference. And if it's now true, which it is, that individuals can make the difference, if it doesn't happen, go home and look in the mirror. And you'll know why we let the world get the way it is, because it, it didn't happen by accident. The last word I'll give you is also Einstein on that subject, vaguely. He said, because you can all do analysis, a penny's too much. It's not. It's the system that has to work. But Einstein said, "Not everything that's countable that's for you business majors. Not everything that's countable counts. And not everything that counts is countable. You have to make judgments. You have to have some courage. And you have to do things differently if you expect the world to change. Thank you.